Hey everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of The Product Shop. This is a show where we get to chat with product leaders to understand their journey and story when it comes to building great products. My name is Michael Nguyen. I'm a growth marketer here at Tablytics. Hey, I'm Dexter, one of the producers of the show. I'm subbing in for Kate today. And we're a feature management and A-B testing platform for modern enterprise brands. For our third episode, we're joined by Zihui, Senior Director of Product at Top Hat, as we reflect on her roots in Singapore, how she determines what makes a great product manager, some things a product manager should expect in the role, the growing pains of a startup in the growth phase, and how the team at Top Hat adapted their core product offering during COVID, which resulted in a very interesting discovery that may set a new way of learning post-COVID. Thank you so much for joining Dexter and I, Z. To start off, could you give the audience a little bit of a quick summary about yourself? I, I moved to Toronto about seven, eight years ago for work. Been here growing my own career, and I definitely feel that I wouldn't have been able to learn all the different skill set that I have from a PM perspective if I was still in Singapore. I know you spent a little bit of time in Singapore after you graduated working for Games Ventures. So I guess you had a little bit of an intro to the tech scene in, in Singapore, but how would you say those two compare and differ? Especially the past few years, I think there's been acceleration in the government side, like investment on startups and really building up that scene. But I would say back then, the startup scene was very nascent. And so when you compare startups in Singapore back then, there was just a handful, which means that from a product management perspective, it's not a very known role. So it's going to be very rare where if you search on the job side, we're looking for a product manager role. Those are hard to find. Not that there isn't anyone doing the job, but there isn't industry recognition that, hey, this job product manager is a formal role that you should be having in your company. And that's very different from this part of the world. So I did spend a year and a half an internship in uh, Silicon Valley. So that was my first entry point as a product manager. And back then they already have a good grasp, even though it was still evolving, they have a good grasp of the value that product managers bring to the table. And they were further along in understanding what is the makeup of what this job entails. It's so fluid. Even now, you need to find the right fit between what the business needs are and the skill set of individual. I've definitely seen a product manager excelling in a company, but just not a great fit in another place. And so it's not even a, about the individual. It's also about finding the right fit for what the business needs at the moment and like all the different industry and domains and all those different knowledge around that. Um, and so I think for all those reasons, uh, North America, including Canada, even though I would say Canada is a little bit behind on the U.S., in the grand scheme of things, there's a better understanding about this role. There's a better support system as well, right? So the community, the people that you meet, the people that can actually share best practices with you, what the different skills that it needs to have is a lot stronger in this part of the world than in Southeast Asia. The other good piece of this area is you find people who have been there, done that. So kind of tapping on the community piece, but in a different lens. So you, you are able to find more experienced product leaders to emulate or work with directly. Because a lot of the pieces about product manager is you're learning on the job. So being able to learn from someone who actually have done the job before goes a long way in your own learning journey as well. Like you said, it's a relatively new community that's yeah. grown pretty fast over the last five, 10 years or so. 
but the product management role in the space is still very much a, a black box, right? A, a product manager at company A is going to be doing very different things than company B. How have you helped define what those roles and responsibilities are throughout the org? That's a great question. We generally look at it from three lens. The first one I've mentioned already, like from a business perspective, what are the key needs that we need right now? I'll use TopEd as the example. We are somewhat in the growth stage right now, meaning there is a lot of changes, there's growing pain. So when you're looking for an individual, some of the characteristics that you want to lay down is you're not just hiring for the now, you're hiring for the next 12 months. Meaning between now and then, you're looking for an individual that's able to go to where the puck is at. Like someone that has a growth mindset, you need those individuals that's going to be able to roll with the punches. But if you're in a much more stable situation as a business, as a company, you don't necessarily need that. You don't necessarily need someone who is in a growth mindset, who leans into the chaos. You're kind of going to look for someone of a different aptitude or mindset in general. So I'll say the business needs to lay, lay the core foundation on what is the kind of individual we're looking for from the get-go. The second piece is for the particular hire that we're making, what is the general area this individual will be owning? And those tends to have specific requirements that comes in. So if it's an area that is more customer facing or like user facing, then you want someone with good uh, UX instincts, you know, good representation of those skill set, including understanding the business set of things. If it's something that's more backend and more technical, then you want an explicit call out about technical savviness, not to the extent that the PM needs to be able to code or like program, because that's not what the job is about but able to speak that language with engineers and run alongside with them and be able to keep up mentally and also just be able to speak the same language uh, or be a good translator to the business side as well. So those are some specific skills that based on what the role or the hire in the area that you'll be owning. I'll say the third piece that we try to look out for as well is whether this individual can level up the entire PMT. So in again, using Top as an example, you can be a really good PM with good PM skill set, or you are an individual with good domain knowledge, or you have, can level up the team as a whole. So I'll say those things we try to look out for when we suss out what are the things that we want to put into the, the recruiting side on that job description itself. If you were to advise your younger self of those three things, would you wait one of them heavier than other, like domain knowledge versus PM toolkit skills, being able to prioritize and whatnot? Yeah, it's a good question. I would try and coach my younger self to optimize for things that is the least coachable. What is the thing that when you come in, you can provide the most value immediately? If you optimize for domain expertise, A, it, it narrows down your job opportunities from the get-go. If I optimize for education, I will always only be able to bounce between education. And also from a value standpoint, if you're joining a company that's in that particular space, by default, there's already a lot of people who knows more than you. The value that you can bring to the table from a domain perspective is much lower. Whereas like, if you are a PM with really good PM's craftsmanship, that's much more fungible. That skill set is going to carry with you no matter where you go. And even though there's nuances in the roles that I speak of earlier, there's still a core foundation. The way you think about prioritization, the way you think about stakeholder management, your communication skill set, like all of those things are soft 
skill set that is just generally applicable no matter where you go. And so that's probably going to go a longer way from a general ROI standpoint. I was doing a little bit of research on you. And there's this one point where you said, as a Singaporean, the culture that you grew up, you were raised to be a little bit more conservative, but pragmatic at the same time. Why do you think that's helped you become more empathetic in how you view product and how you're iterating? I think from a pragmatic perspective, naturally, the default motion that I do is what is the biggest impact we can make here? And that gels really well, especially when you're trying to negotiate and and collaborate with engineering because they're on the hook of deliverables. They're on the hook of actually getting things out in a timely fashion. And so the pragmatic side of me resonates with them really well because a lot of it becomes let's be realistic here what is it that we can do and so from a reality standpoint then the question becomes what is the best thing we can do within this chunk of time that we have that mindset feels natural for the pm to have that kind of conversation with engineering and then the conservative side comes in as well you're not provide any sort of false hope especially from a stakeholder standpoint you generally add a lot of buffer to the things that you say when you're representing the people so those traits just helps you build trust, especially when you're representing the, the design engineering side, you're not overcommitting on their behalf. We can get very tricky and you lose that trust very easily with the team that you're actively working on. I think you totally hit it right there because you need to, to manage the trust of both your engineering team, your product team, but as well the, the, the stakeholders. There's no good way to do it, but how have you handled, you know, you have your roadmap. And then all of a sudden it gets blown up as and you kind of expect it to get blown up, but you still don't want that to happen. Do you have a toolkit or like a playbook on how you communicate that back to, to stakeholders and constantly keep them in the loop so they're not, you know, coming in and exploding everything? It's definitely something that you have to keep juggling along. So one is when I am interfacing with design engineering, I would say, especially on the engineering side, because oftentimes it's the complexity that kills us. Like it's something that we didn't anticipate is going to be so difficult comes up. So when you're in those discussion, especially from a PM perspective, I keep drilling in where's the complexity going to come from. And you can sense from them where they kind of tells you an effort that they're not super confident on. What, what is it that we need to do to gain your, your, your confidence? Like is it a spike we need to go to just do our own due diligence, get as confident as possible when we formulate the roadmap because ultimately we're in control. I think that's the piece that people don't sometimes recognize that you're in control of what gets done when. You need to communicate for sure, but ultimately you're in control. So then that's one piece of the puzzle. Understanding what you're putting down is realistic and is actually um, achievable. Then on the stakeholder side, when plans needs to change, my first goal is understanding the why. Because if I need to make that change, I can bring the context back to the team and have that conversation again. But if things are always changing on their side without a good understanding of why, as a PM, you're probably optimizing for the wrong thing. This change is coming in. Is it because we feel there's another thing that could bring us higher revenue? Or are we optimizing for renewals, retention, user engagement? Like what has changed in our overall business objective? Or is it from a product perspective, I'm optimizing for the wrong roadmap item. That's maybe another thing that could give us the biggest bang for a buck. Because if that's the case, then I'm accountable. But if it's a business objective change that probably is outside of my control, but from a company standpoint, we still need to be able to contribute to the overall success of the company and also from a customer standpoint too. So I'll say 
constantly staying in touch with the business side, understanding if something changed, why has that changed? To the extent that maybe that change is actually irrational, then the PM needs to step in and push back. Let's say you wanted us to do this thing you feel is going to give us bigger bang for our buck. I can come back with, I know, based on my analysis, this is actually the case here. And so as much as possible, make the whole conversation more quantitative, if I would say, if that's possible. So that you have evidence to point to and say, is that change actually the best thing we should be doing for our business and for our customers? And then until that line pops over, you shield the chaos, right, from the people who's actually doing the work. And I would say that's a lot of what the PMs are doing as well, you're absorbing the chaos too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When we hear a lot of our, our clients talk about communicating to push back against irrational changes and the quantitative aspects of that and like the evidence that they use, we yeah. see a lot of our clients use standard KPIs. For the quarter, for example, every experiment that we're running is going to be trying to optimize for like opt-in or checkout conversion. So they're constantly showing those same benchmarks. So mm -hmm. every conversation is, do we increase one, two, or three? Is that similar to, to how you're operating? Our top line department objective needs to be super clear. Let's say for this quarter, we're optimizing for renewals. For this fiscal year, we're all going to be focusing on renewal. Then it's for the PMs to come back with what are the roadmap items that could help move a needle on renewals, right? And renewals, you can slice it in multiple different ways too. So then you can have a secondary discussion around from a renewal standpoint, are we optimizing for usability? Is usability the biggest problem? Like, is it because our product is just flat out unusable? People are not renewing? Or is it that they're not seeing enough value? Then we need to add more value to the product. And I would say, because our product right now is pretty big, the, the thing to optimize for at the secondary level is probably going to look very different team to team. So each PM will need to do their own due diligence to identify like, what is going to be the biggest bang for our buck all charging towards renewals. So the objective is like a rallying cry because beyond renewals, you could optimize for new sales. But in us saying renewals is the key thing to optimize for, we're basically saying no to like any investments relating to new sales or maybe like the lower priority. So then it gives the PMs like a general framework around out of all the different product backlog ideas that I have, which one should kind of like bubble up based on this objective that has been set out and how does it relate to the overall business strategy as well. Because again, for a company of our size, you probably have a few different business strategy in play. Renewals is probably just one of it. And then maybe other departments are focusing on new sale because it will be very weird if I like, know one in the company is thinking about new sale. It's just that product, this half of the year, is not actively contributing to that. So sales are on your own, kind of figuring things out. We're going to be actively working with our CS counterpart to make sure that we have a handle on renewals, for instance. How far ahead are you normally setting these objectives? Like a quarter, a year? I would say some of the context here, I think is unique to Top Hat in the area that we are in. So in higher ed, we are very much a seasonal business. So it works by the academic semester, August to December. That's our peak season. Right now, for instance, May to July, that's our dead season because you don't see a lot of summer courses running. Because fall is our peak, a lot of the sales motion is sometimes fall to fall. So sometimes we do need to give a longer time horizon for sales to understand a little bit more where we're going. But the general rule of thumb that I think a lot of product teams do as well is anything that is down to three months, we're hyper confident. We, we want to get those things out the door, especially for the B2B side, on the sales side, on the CS side, they can speak confidently about 
a three months time frame. And then it's on us to make sure that the team can stay focused within this time period. Anything that's three months out, it starts getting fuzzier and fuzzier. And those are like all subject to change and you can't hold us accountable to a timeline perspective. So we generally abide by that. We, we constantly remind people and you know, every chance we get that the roadmap is a living document. It's not a static piece where when this block is identified, it's always going to stay that way. That's super interesting how you talk about being in ed tech specifically, that it's more seasonality. Yeah. But how do you go about your feedback loop? For us, it comes from mainly from sales and tech support. But I guess for you, where are the different areas that you grab your feedback loop? Is it like students, professors? What's that combination looking like? Customer input is definitely an area that we look at. And there's like a few different channels that we get the feedback from users directly. The other bucket of feedback is internal. And so like again, CS, I would say generally is a, a good team that we work with very closely because they are essentially the proxy to customer sentiment. So from a value perspective and also from a use, user experience standpoint, that department is one that I would say from a product perspective, we stay very close towards right now. Beyond that, in terms of input, we obviously look at our data as well to see where are the different areas that people are touching the most because that's also signaling the areas that people find the most value from as well. And then the higher pieces, which is looking at the market, especially for higher ed, last year just triggered a bunch of change because of COVID. And I think because of that, it accelerated a lot of people's perception around digital adoption. For instance, if I am a professor who has been teaching in a certain way for like decades now, we would have had a lot of uphill battle to convince the professor like, hey, you should think about introducing technology in the way you teach. There's a whole laggard situation going on as well. But with COVID, that's not an objection that they can come up. You need to adopt technology. So that uh, I think opened up a lot of people's perception about what technology could offer for them in a good way. But I think it also changed some of the teaching behavior in the grand scheme of things. For instance, one of the things that the industry right now is talking about is flexibility for students. You can dial it anywhere you want. You can participate in ways that you can. And so I think that changes a lot of the ways people are thinking about teaching, which naturally should change some of the ways that we're thinking about adding value to our customers too. So the market is a one by channel at which we think about how to draw upon what things we want to invest on from a roadmap perspective. And then the last thing is probably from a business strategy standpoint, from a go-to-market perspective, what segment do we want to target? How do we stay in alignment with sales or with marketing? So that's more of the top level strategy um, alignment. That would be another piece for us to align on that could influence the roadmap as well. This pandemic and everything has completely thrown everything upside down, yeah. especially last year in the early stages. Everyone was just scrambling and trying to re-figure out what their 2020 roadmap looked like. Yeah. And realistically, what they'd be building. We had a bunch of customers that had to pull forward a bunch of features that they weren't planning on making until like 2023. One of our customers, they're a fast food chain in the US, mm. and they were planning for their physical stores. They were going to geofence the parking lot. So you would park and then and check in from your phone. Like, no, we need to do that now. So things like that are there's such drastic changes in your, your goals and your alignment from something that you had done like probably a year ago from planning. 
Did anything like that happen with you? And, oh. and, and how did you handle that? Yeah, I think the context for us is pre-COVID. The sweet spot for Top Hat is in-class interactions between professors and students. That's the space that we play in. Because of COVID, that's not an arrangement that was happening across all our customers, right? Everyone was online. Every course was remote. And so a lot of our bread and butter value proposition was just not relevant in that year itself. And so we needed to react very quickly to stay relevant as a teaching toolkit for our instructors and our professors as well. So I would say last year, we brought to market uh, a few different net new products as a means to stay relevant for our instructors and also obviously the business impact that it would have if we did make some of those drastic moves that we needed to do. So for instance, we launched this product called like Virtual Classroom, which is a way for instructors to deliver their course fully through our platform. So you don't have to like turn up Zoom, turn up uh, Microsoft Team. You just have this one platform to go to and everything is delivered there. And it, it worked nicely, especially for a lot of the returning customers who may already have their course uh, materials on our platform already. And so it's just a button to hit it and you can deliver your course and you can still engage with your students. Again, synchronously, virtually, through our chat functionality, for instance, get good reactions from your students, get a pulse on how they're doing, are they understanding, sort of keeping pace. So like a simulation of what professors would want to be able to do if he or she was in person with their students, except the only difference is this run online virtually. So we, we launched like a new product, virtual classroom over a span of three to four months, really from ideation to hitting the ground running and delivering something. I think we at best had four months uh, to really just get something together for the fall semester. And then we also launched a product called uh, Remote Proctoring. Again, it's in reaction to some of the mid-semester move online back in March and April when it was basically in the middle of the winter semester. And then by that time, the remaining activities was exams or midterms or whatever it is. So you've already gone through a big chunk of the teaching materials. You're at the end of trying to assess whether your students actually learned the materials or not. And so we launched a remote proctoring on top of our assessment offering. So a way for instructors to run their exams, especially if you plan on running those exams physically in the exam hall or the exam center, none of those things were going to be happening. So you were kind of like scrambling to figure out how do I actually run my midterms or run our exams, all those different tests. So remote proctoring became a scalable way for instructors to run those tests through the Top Hat platform without having to physically invigilate or proctor every single student. So there is a algorithmic detection aspect to the overall offering itself. But that's like another example of key needs that we're addressing as a reaction to the circumstances that a lot of instructors were put into because of the transition. Yeah, that seems a little hectic. You've been very reactive and trying to build new products. And that must have been so stressful. Were you guys in office and then went remote? Yeah, during the same time period, March and April, we were also busy trying to get everyone to work from home as well. So 100%, like, I mean, if I look back, I was really super proud with how we all stay connected while in the midst of all this chaos, especially, I think one thing that you said earlier as part of your question None of those two things that we rolled out into the market were on the roadmap. If you think about it, we were a physical lecture engagement product. The notion of virtual classroom 
or the notion of remote proctor, there were never things that we thought our target customers would even find value from. The whole like research process, identifying what we need to do, what's going to be valuable, that whole process is condensed into a few weeks of process. That seems very hectic. But I guess now that things are starting to stabilize a little, people are getting vaccinated, there's a potential that everyone has to have one vaccine if they're going to attend on campus. So after virtual classroom and remote proctoring, what's that next phase or what's that next big feature that you guys have been building? And have you guys been able to plan effectively for that for this coming fall? Yeah, definitely. And I I think in terms of coming out of this chaos and, and getting into a state of stability, The way we're thinking about our roadmap right now is very customer-centric, meaning when we talk to all these different professors, because we definitely stay in touch with them and we do ongoing calls with customers, when you take a pulse on where their head is at, for this coming fall especially, people are actually looking for normalcy. They're not looking for a new feature. They're not looking for something different. They're looking to get back to where they were a year ago or two years ago at this point. And so a lot of the emphasis from a product perspective was intentionally about, okay, let's make sure we have a product that's able to welcome all the professors, just make sure they have a very smooth um, experience this fall, that we're not introducing a bunch of new features so that they have to relearn everything as well. We want to definitely offer the sense of familiarity for the professors that's coming back to the product this coming fall. We were intentionally not trying to introduce too many new features just to meet the mental state of where a lot of our customers are probably going to be at when they're teaching this coming fall. Having said that, we definitely have laid down a few different investments that would sort of move the needle in terms of uh, hardening the, the core value propositions of the product. So we do have a few different concepts in mind, but a lot of those are actually informed by some of the conversations that stemmed out of COVID, right? So like one, the whole thing about students' inclusivity and access and equity. How do we make sure that every single student is able to engage effectively in a fair manner, no matter their own individual circumstances? That really came to light during COVID because every student was having different Wi-Fi access at home, everyone has a different financial situation. Some of them may have needed to work alongside being a student as well, just to contribute to a family's financial situation. And so the notion of flexibility and meeting students where they are became a really key guiding principle in how we thought about the other product investments that we needed to make. And so with that, making sure that we have a lot more options available for our students, for instance, One of the improvements that we're making this coming fall is this whole notion of inclusive access. It's basically a program in the U.S., but the idea is to offer options for students on how they might want to think about paying for some of the course materials that is needed for a course. So beyond credit card transaction, which was already available on our product, or going to your bookstore and buy an access code, now you can almost defer the payment on your course material and bill it through your tuition. And through this program, it, it needs to be the cheapest option available to students across all the other channels that's available to them. So there is a bit of an affordability uh, play as well as part of this program. So really getting to the heart of how we can move the needle on the student experience is some of the things that we're thinking about as well. 
I'll say the other thing that we are going to be looking at, again, part of the conversation that the market is having right now is how we assess students. Traditionally, a lot of emphasis is on some of the higher stakes exam, midterms, finals. Those tends to take up 60 to 80% of the course grade. But during COVID, the industry realized that a lot of these high stakes exams are very inaccessible, inequitable for certain student groups. Not everyone is able to participate in these high stakes exams in the same way as the rest of the student population. So then one of the shifts that we are seeing from the market is transitioning into more lower stakes but frequent assessment. So then if you miss this one exam, you're not going to immediately be penalized for 60% of your course grade. That's drastic. If you're having multiple quizzes along the way, if you miss one, that's not the end of the world. You can catch up. So I'll say that's a shift as well that we will need to take into consideration our whole assessment strategy too as part of our platform. But a lot of our guiding principles and how we're thinking about the investments you need to make is really staying in touch with some of the active conversation that's happening across the industry. I, I love that you're focusing on a flexible solution and equitable solution for students because I remember when I was in university, I had an ankle injury. And I couldn't attend my biology class. I was limping in the snow on crutches. It took me like an hour to walk, which usually only took me like five, 10 minutes. But I still had to go to class because there's no other way. Otherwise, I'd miss the lecture. But that's super interesting that you're leaning towards that more equitable solution for a lot of students. So seeing it's going to be like a hybrid type of solution for ed tech and learning. Do you see the market where the only benefit of a student going to campus would be more for social reasons? Like it's going to involve into a more hybrid solution of learning now where you don't have to attend the lecture, but you can just access it through Top Hat. Where do you see that going now? Um, I guess one of the biggest learning that we had over this whole COVID situation is the importance of connection. And the connection can come through a few different ways. But in the context of a course, the relationship between the instructor and the students and the relationship between students and students or like amongst their peers. I would say at face value, it might look like, oh, if we provide this hybrid option, why would students still go to lecture? Like what's the purpose? But we actually find that some students um, still want to have a close relationship with their professors, both pragmatic, but also motivational reasons. At the end of the day, what keeps the students going is knowing that there's someone else at the end of the course that cares about their success and and oftentimes that's the professor that's the instructor that's the educator that's teaching the course and so having a good rapport having that close relationship may not have to be every single lecture that's the where the flexibility kicks in but from time to time I do appreciate if the professors know my name know that I'm a student in your class that a relationship that I think maybe not all students but some students definitely gravitate towards and then the other more pragmatic reason is that hey if I have a good relationship with my professor they're going to be able to write me a good reference letter or a good recommendation letter so having a good personal relationship with a professor has some value regardless and I think it will be very difficult to build that if you are purely staying virtual uh, throughout the course itself, right? And then the other piece is like the student peer-to-peer relationship. And I would say that's like one of the reasons why you go to university is to build up that network that you can stay in touch with post-university life as well. And when it comes to student bonding, there's a few different ways you can build that inside and outside of class. So in some ways, it will be a missed opportunity if students are not 
capitalizing on building that relationship with the cohort of students that's taking the same course as them. Because more likely than not, they're probably going to be your peers in the same program. You're probably going to be seeing them a lot. And also, like, I think it'd be very difficult to build that kind of relationship purely online as well. So definitely that has came up as almost more of a fear that like, hey, if we offer this flexibility, is it a catch-22 situation where that's going to cause students to not come into class? But in reality, I think a lot of the professors are not seeing that really came to play even over COVID because a lot of them needed to pre-record their lecture and put it online, but they do still see a level of engagement or participation from their students as well. I, I can confirm that fear is a good motivation for school, whether it's a positive or negative relationship with the professor. I remember we had name cards in front of everyone's seat. So if you weren't prepared, prof could just call out your name and ask you to answer. So for better or for worse, a relationship is a good thing in interacting education. I wanted to ask you, what are some products? It doesn't have to be related to your day-to-day stack or whatever, even just like your consumer apps that you use. What are some of your favorites? What are you spending most of your time on right now? Lately, I haven't been um, sleeping very well. So I have actually been using this app called, what's it called? She's right. Sleep Cycle? I think so. I've been using that for like a year and a half. I got onto a paid subscription. I find it really helpful to understand my sleep patterns. And if I am not feeling very energetic or my mental state is not very well the next uh, day, I would look back and say, is it to do with my sleep? They give you a lot of data, but they also try to trim it down for you to make it like a bit easier to consume. I get a little skeptical sometimes about sleep cycle because I've been using it for a while. It like gives you your score, like your percentage of how well you slept the next morning. But sometimes I take a look at it and that's the first thing I see. And if it says like 50%, then I know, oh, okay, I had a bad sleep. Pre-conceiving me oh. into like a bad sleep or did I actually have a bad sleep? So I, I get confused sometimes, but like sometimes it hits 95% and I feel like I didn't have a good sleep, but I guess you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, for sure. I but, think it's more of a trend, right? Like- but it's definitely interesting to see the patterns. As you collect more data, you can kind of see what the common pattern is and how well you slept. On the work side, I think, because we're working from home, we've been all trying out Fig Jam. If you guys haven't, I highly recommend it. We are really enjoying that as a brainstorming ideation you know, tool. Basically like Miro, but we all find the experience to be a lot more social. It's like, you know, different stickers. You can put on people's ideas. You can be more fun with it. It just adds this social element to the, the overall brainstorm process. Because again, it's already awkward to do brainstorming virtually. Anything that could break that barrier helps. If you had the the choice, or maybe you do, would you want to stay remote or would you want to go back in? I wouldn't mind if we fully reopen and that everyone needs to go back in person. I would mind if we stay fully remote. It is definitely an option that I'm willing to explore as well. I feel like work from home, remote work, probably okay. But the remote socials, I've had enough of. I will not do another happy hour over Zoom. I will do anything else except that. It's just very awkward to have like back and forth because if you speak over each other, you're not going to hear anything. Yeah, you can't have side conversations. My favorite though is at the end where everyone is kind of looking around to see who's going to be the first one to be like, I got to run. Okay, bye, bye, bye. And then all the windows disappear. <laughs> is there anything that you wanted to call out? I'm always available on LinkedIn if people want to hit me a chat. I'm always open to meeting with other product folks, could be PMs, could be design, could be engineering. 
people with like interesting things to talk about. Well, Z, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We appreciate you sharing your insights and perspective into the product world and your journey at Top Hat. I'm sure the audience will definitely find some golden nuggets of knowledge in this episode. But once again, we want to give a big shout out to Taplytics for letting us host this segment. If you have any questions for Z, feel free to reach out to her on her LinkedIn as she'd be happy to connect with some fellow product folks. But until next time, we hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode and stay tuned for more.